LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Assuming equal intelligence. Oh, no, I'm not. They don't need their intelligence to equal ours. Trivet stick. All irregularities will be handled by the forces controlling each dimension. Uranic, heavy elements may not be used where there is life. Medium atomic weights are available. Gold, lead, copper, jet, diamond, radium, sapphire, silver and steel. Sapphire and steel have been assigned. Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Thomas Sheridan who joins us to discuss hauntology and cult pop culture of the past. In his book Ghosts of My Life, Mark Fisher defined hauntology as music and culture that draws from and examines a sense of loss of a post-war utopian progressive modernist future that was never quite reached. The 1970s was a decade rich with hauntological themes, many of which stemmed from both the promise and the threat of the post-war world, and later continued to be felt well into the 1980s. Many TV shows, movies and books of the period, particularly the 1970s, are remembered and misremembered with near-religious reverence, while cliques of contemporary artists and writers wander the corridors of the past in search of inspiration. From cult TV shows such as Sapphire and Steel, The Tomorrow People and Children of the Stones to the mind-warping writing of John Wyndham, Nigel Neal and Eric von Daniken and from folk horror and dystopian sci-fi to stories for children far beyond anything being written for adults today we probe the uncanny underbelly of decades gone by. Hello and welcome, Thomas, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi, Greg. It's delighted to be back again. It's been a long time and it's always a pleasure to be here. Oh, excellent. I'm very pleased that you're here and delighted to talk to you once again. Recently, Thomas, you and I both read 
the same book. It's uh, by Stephen Prince. The book is entitled A Year in the Country, Wandering Through Spectral Fields. And the subtitle is Journeys in Otherly Pastoralism, The Further Reaches of Folk and the Parallel world, Worlds of Hauntology. And uh, we were chatting about this book and it makes a good springboard to talk about a lot of things that you and I share as mutual interests. We're the same generation after all, a lot of things that we grew up with and things that we still refer back to and remember. Just before we dive into that, Thomas, is there anything you'd like to say to listeners and maybe those who are not already familiar with your work? Well, if they want to find out about it, they can go to my website, www.mossuponstones.com. And if they want to see where my work is going now and heading forward, I have a channel that's roughly based on many of the things I've spoke about in the past, and particularly the topics we're covering on this interview. It's called Beyond Room 313, and it's on YouTube. And that's basically everything else is as it was. Uh, and I can't, that's, I had no, I'm not working on any books or anything at the moment. I'm particularly interested in exploring film for the most part, although I will be writing books again at some point in the future. But right now, the, the making of films in terms of creating vignettes of topics similar, similar to what we're going to be talking about tonight and other things such as megaliths and so on and ancient sites will be covered from now on indefinitely on Beyond Room 313 on YouTube. Splendid. Okay, well, um, before we get started, I'm going to say a word about hauntology. That was a word that was part of the subtitle of the book. It's not created by the author by any means. So I've got a little spiel here, some uh, information I pulled off the web for people who just don't know what it is. Now, obviously, in my recorded intro, I've said something about what we're going to be talking about this evening. But just for those who don't know, so hauntology which is a portmanteau of haunting and ontology, is a concept coined by philosopher Jacques Derrida, Derrida, I don't know how you pronounce that, in his 93 book Spectres of Marx. The term refers to the situation of temporal, historical and ontological disjunction in which the apparent presence of being is replaced by a deferred non-origin, represented by, quote, the figure of the ghost as that which is neither present nor absent, neither dead nor alive. Uh, In the 2000s, the term was taken up by critics in reference to paradoxes found in late modernity, particularly contemporary culture's persistent recycling of retro aesthetics and the incapacity to escape old social forms. Critics such as Mark Fisher and Simon Reynolds used the term to describe art preoccupied with this temporal disjunction and defined by, quote, a nostalgia for lost futures. Common reference points in hauntological music include vintage analogue synths, cassette tapes, library music, old sci-fi and pop horror programmes, including the soundtracks of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, music concrete, found sounds, English psychedelica and 1970s public informational films. I'm almost finished with this. Uh, Mark Fisher in his book Ghosts of My Life, I was going to interview him by the way, but then he killed himself. He defines hauntology as, quote, music and culture that draws from and examines a sense of loss of a post-war utopian progressive modernist future uh, that was never quite reached. In all of your cultural wanderings, have you come across uh, this term hauntology, read much about it? I mean, obviously, all the things I've described you're familiar with anyway. I knew what the term meant, and I've always been fascinated by the idea of being in terms of a disconnect from present being. And I'd never heard those descriptions of it so eloquently put as what you just read. And I love both of them. I absolutely love both of them. It's almost like ontology makes a science of nostalgia or something like that. It's almost I can remember back in the day when I lived in New York, there was a group in the city called the... Association for the Advancement of Time. And what they were trying to do was, they were mostly computer hackers, and what they were trying to do was to get people to start moving forward rather than culture being trapped in the past. And I think the benchmark for this was when they said they were sick and tired of hearing people saying that Live Aid was the new Woodstock. And I totally agreed with that idea that we were stuck in these sort of like twee ideas of nostalgia. And when ontology came along, it was like, yes. That's kind of how I do feel, that there's something more special to this kind of folk horror or, you know, analog synth music and books and magazines of the era I grew up in. That is almost has a sense of refinement to it. It's refined or attenuated towards specifically our generation, but it carries with it almost like a vintage, like a wine that can be appreciated by later generations. So I do love the term, although... 
I wasn't I didn't I wasn't overly familiar with the descriptions of it. But I have to say I do love the idea. In fact, I absolutely find it delicious. Well, there's good and bad in this. We say nostalgia for a lot of people it has a warm fuzzy glow, you know, because this grass yeah. is always greener, particularly if the grass is in the past. People are obsessed with living in the past or the future, aren't they? Most people, it's about what happened and things were better back then or things are going to be better tomorrow. It's never about where they actually are. And things, as far as in the context that we're concerned with, you've got things like Vaporwave, which is a musical phenomenon. And they sort of do mashups and pastiches and distortions of mostly 1980s culture uh, in a sort of like an ironic way. It's a comment, a negative comment on that culture. And Simon Reynolds, who I've already mentioned in his book Retromania, you know, highlights a lot of the negative aspects of nostalgia. But the dimension, the, the other flip side of that, uh, in uh, Mark Fisher's definition, you know, like a loss of a post-war utopian progressive modernist future that was never quite reached. There are things when we look back, whether it's in the reality of the past, you know, a lot of the culture we're discussing is in the 70s, or in that culture that was something about, it spoke to something about the future that seemed very achievable. And I'm not talking about the bubble cars and day trips to the moon, you know, that sort of like uh, Jetsons type future, which was never realistic, but something else. And I think there's a definite sense uh, reflected in this culture that at that time, particularly in the 70s, there was a this sort of struggle over what the shape of the future shape of society was going to be, where we were going. I think, I don't know about you personally, but I, I feel that in many ways we have failed or are failing. Um, but it's still, I'm still optimistic. I think we can do better. Yeah, I, when you, I totally agree with that. But I also believe that what we're talking about here is nostal- nostalgia with a clause. It's not nostalgia for the sake of, you know, fuzzy, happy Coca-Cola Christmas Day type memories. Like I, some of the things we talked about absolutely traumatized me as a child. Like the the ending of the the Quatermass three seventy nine, what happened in that? That was horrifying. It was also these public service ads that used to like the I am the spirit of dark and lonely waters. That thing used to absolutely terrify me as a kid. So it's also an, it's like a it's like a, a complete nostalgia. It's not it's not just the nostalgia of the warm fuzzy memories, but it's a nostalgia of the the, the traumatic things as well. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the, the 70s were politically and socially a, a bloody awful time on these islands. You had the troubles in Northern Ireland, which had spilled over in the British cities. And it was not surprising that people sought a spiritual ref- or a, you know, spiritual or cultural ref- refuge in the countryside of England. As you had cities that were being subject to car bombings and so on. And you also had the racial and social tensions within British urban society. And everything from football hooliganism to the National Front to events. What about the Yorkshire Ripper, which manifested into the minds and souls of people in South West Yorkshire, actually destroying nice out nice outings at the pub where they used to play the bogus Ripper confession tapes on the PA system while they were trying to forget the whole bloody thing. It was almost like a, a you know a trauma based mind control decade. So it's not surprising that there was so many TV shows about the countryside and escapism, but also the idea, if you grew up in the northern area, there was still that sense that the countryside was a strange place. And I think that's why hauntology and these ideas of folk horror, they appeal more to people who grew up in urban areas in that period, like like I did, and then also longed to be in the countryside simply because it was different and also escaping this you growing up in northern Ireland during the troubles escaping that reality too so it's like i said it's it's nostalgia with a clause it's not it's not fuzzy and warm well a lot of the the cultural artifacts here you know the tv music and movies and what have you was being set up prior to the 70s through you know the whole post-war period you were building towards Things like Quatermass and Doctor Who, all this stuff was beginning to bubble up. It's just that the 70s for me, which incidentally I think is a golden age for cinema, certainly almost all of my absolute favourite films come from that decade. It's kind of a coincidence, but kind of not in a way, I think. Uh, but certainly as the 60s moved into the 70s and you had what was happening with the death of the counterculture in the States, and as you mentioned, this sort of decade of discontent in the UK and many European countries as well. You know, let's not forget you had uh, not just the terrorist problems in 
Ireland and spilling over into the mainland UK, you had terrorist groups dotted around, you know, in Italy and Germany and stuff. So it was very, very unsettled time. And that's certainly an important backdrop to all of this, whether it's taking that sense and that atmosphere and reflecting it directly or metaphorically or alternatively trying to be some sort of escape from it. Yeah, that's a very good point. You had like the Brigade Rosse blowing up half of uh, Italy and kidnapping prime ministers. You had Barda Meinhof in Germany doing similar things as well. It was a strange time, all right. It was well, it was the same reason I think a lot of these hippies in America became Jesus freaks when the whole hippie thing, the Summer of Love thing, imploded. Probably with the Manson uh, murders in in L.A. in Hollywood, it it was the end of something that I don't think was real anyway. If you, I mean, I lived in the U.S. for a long time, and I spoke to people who lived through that era, and they said the whole flower children Woodstock thing was very much a middle-class experience, often an upper-middle-class experience. Working-class kids in America were being shipped off to Vietnam. So it was dependent. Also, there was that schism affected the American aspect. So it really was a global phenomenon. It really was. One of the things we can draw out from the dimensions of hauntology that uh, we've already mentioned is basically, and this filters through and penetrates almost everything that we're talking about, is this sense of the uncanny, something unsettling about, you know, whether it's, it's music or whether it's movies, whether it's TV, a sense of the other, and there being a dark underbelly just beneath the surface. Now that, as you've already mentioned, that comes particularly to the fore as far as the countryside is concerned, for urban dwellers, I'm not sure how... I don't remember that much fiction regarding rural dwellers coming into an urban setting and coming unstuck, but I'm sure that probably existed as well. Yeah, I guess a lot of it had to do... I mean, there's there's other factors in here as well. It was a very rich time in terms of availability, even though, you know... I often think about the idea of what was the internet before the internet. And it was things like magazines. And I remember, do you remember that back in the 70s? I mean, people forget that things like the occult was huge starting in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And you had things like magazines, periodicals such as Man, Myth and Magic. These are publications you could pick up in your local supermarket or your newsagent. They were all over the place. They were read by ordinary people. And that magazine, for me personally, summed up this era perfectly. It could be seen as something as a a user manual for the ontological consciousness or unconsciousness of the period. It was those kinds of things. Dennis Wheatley novels. I can remember that being that that kind of thing being enormous back then. It was everywhere. Where did that come from? There was the shadow. The, the shadow was being confronted within Western society at that period. Lots of things had broken down. You had social breakdowns in england you had things like uh, massive endless strikes with british rail and the, the coal miners and three-day work weeks and lights being switched off there was this sudden it was almost like people were tr- thrown back into the middle ages for a you know an, a segment of their existence and the the ghosts of the past where the, their ancestors may have read ghost stories have been told about demons or pixies or witches they that suddenly re-emerged again in this mainstream obsession with occultism that probably originally started the hammer movies in the, the in the 60s but it it got progressively darker and stranger and made its way into all aspects even children's television and literature it was absolutely everywhere and i think that's you know the shadow the shadow is an interesting thing on one level it's Something people avoid, societies avoid, but on the other side, the confrontation with the shadow is very culturally enriching. So I think there's an awful lot of that kind of thing going on. In fact, I think one of the main problems today that we have in the world today is that we don't really have that shadow side. Everything is so accessible and abundant that it's, it's, this is one of the reasons our cultures have become very watered down and superficial, particularly, you know, in terms of music and everything else. You know, the reason why American cinema was so fantastic in the 70s is because of things like the Vietnam War. Suddenly they started, instead of looking at America as the great hero that saved the world, America was suddenly the bastard of the planet. And Americans were starting to see that in themselves. And this is where movies like Taxi Driver and all those mafia movies and all that kind of thing 
even films like The Warriors, it all came from this idea of America confronting the shadow. And that's why Hollywood films during the 70s are absolutely fantastic. That sh- that shark in Jaws was very could easily be seen as an allegory for what went wrong with America. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned earlier me saying that the 70s was, I thought, was a golden age for cinema. And for all, for the reasons that you've just cited, particularly, The Warriors is a wonderful film, but even those three of my favorite films from the 70s, um, are Dirty Harry, uh, The French Connection, and The Taking of Pelham 123, which on the face of it are kind of like cops and robbers films, basically, in a way, you know, they're, they're law enforcement sort of dramas or whatever, I mean, you know, like drugs, crime, but yeah. they, they, there's something about them, you know, the people who, who wrote, produced and directed these things were not, well, maybe, not, I don't know if they thought they were consciously, but certainly the end result doesn't just look like a pitch at the mainstream. You know, they've got a dynamic to them. Many of that dimensions of those films, you just don't see these days. Oh, it's also interesting you picked those three films because they could have all happened on the same day in the same city. They all look, they have the same aesthetic backdrop, you know, mm-hmm. New York, filthy streets, and gigantic cars, Chevrolets and Dodges that are half falling apart and unclean. You know, smashing, driving on the subway lines that are, you know, unpainted and rusting. And it's it's interesting that you picked those three because they're all, they could have all happened at the same day. Mm-hmm. The aesthetic is so similar. Yeah, because when you you look at Dirty Harry's San Francisco, how the contrast between that and the the Hate Ashbury sort of uh, vibe. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, just a little aside. You were talking about the occult being massive. The seventies, and that, again, that was an overhang or sorry, continuing development from the sixties. But everybody, uh, well, sort of people that move in our circles, anyway, will be familiar with Colin Wilson's book, The Occult, which is a much more diverse book than it first appears. But you know that was his bestseller, and that kind of really sums up the zeitgeist. But of all the occult and related books that that I have, or the ones that I built a library of when I was a teenager, they were all published in the 60s or 70s and I'm, I'm looking at three shelves of them right in front of me now and I can remember buying these things I got them I think I've told you this story before but in the next town along from me there was no secondhand bookshop in our town uh, the next town along there was a covered market made up with all little units and you could sell whatever you wanted in them and this guy had in one of the central units had set up a secondhand bookshop and because it was right in the center of this covered market, there was no windows. And you go into this and it just smelt of old books. You know that smell. Yeah. Books, shelves groaning, shelves up so high you couldn't reach them. Books stacked on piles all over the floor. Every time I went in, he was there. He was usually on his own, sitting on his high bar stool, smoking his little roll up and reading a book. And it was almost like he, every time I went in, it was like he was waiting for me to arrive. And once he got to know me, he'd pull things out and say, oh, I've got something for you. And he'd produce these things. And of course, it was like, yeah, I want this, I want this, I want this. You know, So that in itself was almost like a little vignette. You know, if, if one of those Hammer horror films that are made up of several short stories, it felt like that. Yeah, that was, that's, that was another aspect of it. I can remember where I grew up, there was a chain called the Bamba, which interestingly is a name for an old mythological name for Ireland. But they used to have thousands and thousands of these secondhand paperbacks and so, you know, that's where I discovered Dennis Wheatley. There was all kind, you know, you'd, you'd have these, these books with silly covers, like, about, you know, about witchcraft, and you'd have a, a half naked woman on the, t- on the front, you know, with her, her boobs being hidden by her hair, hmm. you know, sitting down in a, in a pentagram or the b- books in astrology with covers like that. But you'd actually buy these books and take them home and find that they were actually very, very good. They were very, the, I can remember the first book on, uh, the first time I heard, uh, read an Alistair Crowley book was uh, a, a paperback on astrology he wrote. And I remember thinking it was very funny. It was parts of it he was slagging off the poet William Butler Yeats and showing, demonstrating that his chart was proved, would prove that he was a loser in this kind of thing. And it was, uh, that was all, like yourself, secondhand, grubby, cheap paperbacks printed on terrible paper. But they had a, almost like an avalanche effect it was from that that many of us went on a different path in life and brought us through a different conjude if they, they had i know for a fact if those books had never been there and i'd never stumbled upon them i don't know if i would have been developed the same love for this kind of stuff that i have all my life no and i think some of these pulp and i'm not using that in the derogatory sense just literally they were cheap 
cheaply manufactured paperbacks with exploitation type covers designed to sell, designed to appeal to people who wouldn't necessarily like what was inside, if you see what I mean. They belong to the same school of of cultural artifacts that we're talking about. You know, the aforementioned music, TV and movies is part of the same thing, all part of the same, I don't want to cuss, not a movement, but uh, I, I can't quite think, it's part of the same energy it's like it's yes. a hard thing to phrase yeah yeah you're perfect yeah energy that's much much better yeah but what you just said about uh, some of those books reminds me of something i was hinting at earlier there's a sense with some of these things whether it's fiction or non-fiction that that there's more to more than meets the eye or more than meets our five senses to everything about the world that we live in and that there there is a some kind of hidden or underlying or deeper reality or hyper reality, <clears throat> you know, above what, just that our five senses are not giving us all the information, but equally, and this is very frustrating in what the 1980s ultimately became, but the, the age that we find ourselves in now, that not everything is solvable, not everything is knowable to us. And, you know, in the scientific era, that's incredibly frustrating because we want to know what is, how things are, what the story is, what the score is. We want the results to be in. So we can sleep at night, and that's not what life is. It's not what the world or the universe is. That's absolutely true. Uh, true, and I think so much of that came from, as you said, the scientific idea that even psychological problems could be treated with a a visit to a certain person or a you know a professional or a give them a pill or something, and it didn't it didn't solve those things. I think also the this idea of because things were so nasty during the 70s in this part of the world, there was a longing for an alternative reality that maybe had answers to why, or at least an element that, as re- religion had completely failed by then. People had no faith in the idea of a, a sky god or a sky fairy coming to save them. That had basically, in Europe anyway, for the most part, that had vanished. And there was a, a desperate need to know, I think, that there was something more than the bread and butter, flesh and bones of reality. And I think a lot of that came from this as well, that you you were in the countryside or you saw, had a strange experience, you saw a strange light in the sky. And let's not underestimate the, the sheer sense of excitement that this could lead to. I can remember, was I was about nine or ten, there was a newspaper here in Ireland and there was just like a trashy tabloid every Sunday ran features on UFOs. It was around the time of Van Daniken and uh, Chariot of Gods. And I can remember being, I've never been, ex- the excitement, the sense of wonder, this idea that aliens or spacemen could be visiting this planet. I used to stand on the balcony of Tower Block where we lived in and used to keep track, keep watch to wait if we could see a spaceship or an alien or something like that. Never did, but it was incredibly exciting. It was, it was, it was truly magical, but it lifted me out of ordinary childhood. It lifted you, these experiences lifted you out of that. They, they pulled you up into another place that was beyond the everyday drudgery. And I think that was a, a, ma- a this is a huge aspect of why this, this, this hauntology think culture has grown. Well, you mentioned, Eric von Daniken there, he of the Chariots of the Gods fame, now basically notorious in um, archaeological or alternative archaeological circles. Uh, however, I will say one thing about him now that you've mentioned him. Uh, like Colin Wilson, he was a best-selling author in the late 60s and early 70s. And I remember getting his books from the library and it was like, what's not to like about this, I thought, as I read the back cover. And I'd never been introduced to some of the ideas he introduced, I'd never encountered before in any form. So I read them with great interest, voraciously got all of his uh, main titles at the point at the time. Now, he's been widely discredited and debunked. But for me, I still count finding his books as a really important developmental step. Because whatever, even if I put them back on the shelf and I've never picked them up since, this is about the early 80s when I got them, it it opened my mind, just yes. opened my mind full stop. Not in the sense of, you know, if your mind's too open, you know, your brain will fall out. But it was just to the sense of possibility. You know, I had a much more zoomed out, higher view of 
things after that. I was more open to things and I was like to think and I, I could and I still can trust my own judgment into what I will make of information. But that was, a, it was a game changer. Even if people say, yes, books are rubbish, you know, whatever, but that's not the point. It's still that catalyst, if you know what I mean. I'd go one step further than that. I think his books have a very, a very, val- had a very valuable role to play, not in the whole idea of aliens and ancient aliens, but he was the first one in the mainstream to make people think maybe the history were being, were being given in school as bullshit. Mm-hmm. How were the pyramids really built? Why are there these things in South America we can't explain? And I would put Van Danigan as the seed from which the likes of Robert Bruval, Graham Hancock, and all the people who study megaliths and ancient, even myself, to this day, was gestated from. So it's one of those interesting accidental things that like shoots off uh, another tangent. And that's what he did. And I'll always be grateful for him for actually opening up the, like, who really, what are the, the Easter Island statues, you know, why are they there? You know, you take the alien stuff out of it. He he performed a very, very important function in where alternative thinking ideas and media is today. Yeah, I think so. It's it's asking the question, isn't it? Or just yeah. acknowledging that, that maybe that the official story doesn't stack up and that because it fits like sort of 50% or whatever, that we should just forget the subject is over with. Because I remember reading about... Uh, the Easter Island statues, for example, when I was before I discovered von Daniken and reading a, whatever mainline theory there was about them, and I didn't have any other information to go on. I said, "Oh, that's interesting." You know, I wonder how they were made and moved on. So I think people like von Daniken were just opening it up a little more, so that even if you left their work behind, you took the sort of spirit with you of inquiry of say, "Well, actually, no, I'm not satisfied that I understand how this was done or why it was done or who did it." So I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask more questions, even if I'm told to like just leave off this, you know, let it go. Yeah, and another thing behind them is back to the covers. So many of those UFO books and those kinds of books from the 70s had fantastic artwork on the cover, absolutely outstanding. And that was another thing too. This the the use of graphic design and art in that period really reached people and spoke to them. It, it was it was like comic books for adults or people that didn't read comic books. And his books, I always remember, had fantastic branding in terms of the, how the, the graphic design looked, which looked amazing, but also the, the format it was within. You could walk into any bookshop in the world, and from a 100 yards, you could tell that book was about the subjects you were interested in, UFOs, ancient mysteries, ghosts, whatever. They all had a certain look. And I... I, I, I think that later on that became popular in magazines like Omni and, and science fiction book paperbacks. But there was something about that artwork that's very appealing and very, uh, you, you, you want to get your, it, it's almost like hypnotic. Yeah. I mean, I've got entire books that consist of pictures of book covers. If you see what I mean, or artwork that was created for book covers, many of them from that period. And yeah, they're really, um, which you don't often get these days when the digital era, you know, a lot of things, ironically, given the power of the technology, a lot of artwork is thrown together. But, um, a lot of those things in their own right, that it was a, an artwork that had, a, you know, a piece of art in its own right that had its own power and its own independent worth and existence. It just so it happened to end up on the, on the front of a pulp paperback. Absolutely. And you wanted to collect them and keep them. I think that's also why, Nowadays, you don't find many of those books in charity shops or even in second-hand stores, or rarely even on things like eBay. I think people will have them tend to keep them just for that reason alone. I know I do. Oh, I've certainly gone, I've picked up paperbacks that I've got that fit the bill, what we're discussing, and, you know, stuck it into Amazon, and it's like, you'll see it as like, either not available, or, you know, there's some chancer on there, some Arthur Daly character's got it for like, yeah. got it for 900 quid or something, knowing that if anybody in the world is serious about owning this, they're going to have to, uh, stump up that sort of cash. And while it's highly unlikely to happen, if it did sell, what a payday, you know? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's almost impossible to find those paperback magic books. Mm. They're almost, like you said, you're either going to pay a king's ransom for them, but in general, they're not even out there, even for the king's ransom. Whoever has them, like I, I stumble upon, I had it when I was younger, but I found it again, an original, I think in 1973 or 4, Colin Wilson's Necronomicon. And 
it's just like I, I practically have that thing bolted <laughs> into my bookshelf. <laughs> there's just something, and there's nothing special about the cover or anything, but the, the, it was the first time I ever heard of chaos magic and things, these ideas. But yeah, I mean, that's, there's something you, you, they're like prized possessions that rarely come on the market. I used to wonder, uh, when I, I had books that I had to actually go and I, it would be brought to mind for some reason, sometimes, you know, usually for mm-hmm. some connection with something else. And I'd say, wait a minute, that book I got, what's it called? Who's it back? And see the yeah. cover. And I'd have to go and look for it to see, yeah, am I imagining that book or have I got it? And then I would find it some of the time. And then I'd wonder, is someone going around, has somebody been going around buying up all the copies of this so that, <laughs> so that no one else can see them? And that leads me into the area uh, which is very relevant to some aspects of hauntology, which is like misremembering, because a lot of nostalgia is about misremembering. And that also connects with the question that I mentioned to you before we did this, you know, can collective memory be trusted? And there's certainly, there's at least one television show that I was convinced that I saw in the late 70s or early 80s, uh, like a one-off drama. I can find no evidence whatsoever that it exists or any reference to any elements of the plot. And needless to say, it was a, it was an occult sort of mystery thing. What was the name of the show? What are the, the, the thing that you, that you didn't, didn't I thought, exist? I used to tell people, I have, have you ever seen The Devil's Hutch? Well, they'd go, no. no, 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 I've never seen that. I said, oh, yeah, because I remember it was about this. And what was it? I said it was about, there was an entrance to an under, there was, basically it was like an entrance to hell. <laughs> and it was located just in this rural setting and some children discovered it. And they said, oh, I've never heard of that. And I subsequently looked in the internet age. You know, one good thing about Dr. Google is, is access to this mass collective species memory, though some of it obviously is, is missing or in missing an action or removed, but no reference to anything like that whatsoever. But I can almost see the title sequence. There's no sound in my memory of recollection, but I can see this bit of forest and clearing leaves away and fallen timber. And that's it. That, that This thing exists, but it doesn't. So there you go. It's all in my own mind, apparently. I have a memory of a TV show of kids on the Danube Delta that had been dubbed into English. And they would have adventures with smugglers. It was sort of like a, a Slavic version of the Enid Blyton, but more better, better stories. And, 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 and I can't find any trace of it either. At the same time, too, I have no memories of shows that everybody watched. I have, now you would think that something like Sapphire and Steel would have been right up my street. I never saw, I have no memory of that even being on the TV or anything. If I did, I probably thought it was a cop show or something with a title like that, mm. detective show. Cagney and Lacey, Sapphire exactly. and Steel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had absolutely no memory of that, seeing that in the TV guide and the newspapers or even been advertised. And that would have been right up my street. Uh, you know, like, it was like a grown, it was grown version of shows like the Tomorrow People at the Time Tunnel from American TV. Yeah. And I used to love stuff like that. But it's like, you miss, so you have like misremembering, but you also, it just goes to show you how much stuff was around, around back then, even though we had so few channels, the, the abundance of quality was staggering, really. Oh man, now you've got me doing a, um, a, I love, my favorite form of comedy is parody. And in my mind now, I've got Starsky and Hutch's paranormal investigators and what that would be like, you know, like Huggy Bear. You know, <laughs> Huggy Bear would be like an interdimensional uh, yeah. a gin or something that they could, you know, like uh, <laughs> Mandini from uh, Edward Kelly and John D. That's what he'd be like. Hey, man, I'm down in the streets and I'm, well, I'm, and across, the, I'm across the space time continuum. <laughs> <laughs> in, in Sapphire and Steel, one of the elements who manifest, they manifest as humanoid characters like Sapphire and Steel are one of the elements is lead and he's actually a black dude. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but uh, we should probably move on from that before things get too ridiculous. Now, <laughs> you said I was surprised uh, when you originally told me that you hadn't seen Sapphire and Steel because, again, I assumed, you know, people of a certain generation and you're interested in sci-fi and the paranormal and all these things. And it was on mainstream TV. Let's not forget that, you know, only three channels back then. I'm not sure you had RTE 1, RTE 2 in the Republic. We, did, we didn't even have RTE 2. It was just RTE 1 and a, a few cha- like HTV from Wales came over and BBC from Northern Ireland. That was really it. Yeah, it was possibly possible rather that, that RTE never screened Sapphire and Steel because they would have had to pay for it, wouldn't they? They had to buy it in. 
in order yeah. to screen it. But have you subsequently uh, seen any of it? Because I, I know that you've I think you looked looked into it in order to to read about it and say, no, what? I, I never saw that. Oh yeah, I have. I mean, there's another thing too. It had two actors in who were superstars at the time. Mm-hmm. That's that's another reason it should have been it should have seen it. No, it's I have watched it. You know, I think we first spoke about this about three or four years ago that you'd mentioned it, mm-hmm. and then I started watching it on YouTube or somewhere like that. I'm kind of glad I didn't watch it as a kid because it was, it's kind of, it's really creepy and dark and the whole idea of time, the destroyer, time is an enemy and your fate and destiny is, you know, malevolent forces to be battled rather than accepted. Mm-hmm. I was, I looked up, I was looking, I was up the writer, Peter J. Hammond. He was directly also inspired by an experience of staying in the haunted castle, which is kind of interesting too. And you had themes very similar to Nigel Keneal's Stone Tape. Yes. The yes. psychometric aspects, yeah. Like a past events being contained within material fabric or locations. Like antiques, old objects, you know, malevolent elements of elements of time connected with human memory and psychological traumas. It's it's real very very sophisticated writing for its time. And also even the characters, the you know, Sapphire and Steel themselves they act, they're, they're aloof. There's something very aloof about them. They're almost like pagan gods uh, in, in human avatars, you know. And they're, although they're not, they're not actually even human themselves. And even on that idea, I was, I was thinking the other night there, but like they remind me of the god Kronos, the idea of, again, time the destroyer. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're fighting him. He was almost like their enemy. And, just as, just, just as aside, for a laugh, I typed in Sapphire into, it, like, I think I wrote something like Sapphire and Steel Quantum and stuff like that. And amazingly, I found out, you're going to like this, that at CERN, one of the projects was developed called Awake, which was concerned with the understanding of the loss of energy over time and used, used, wait for it, a sapphire laser fired through a steel magnet. Wow. <laughs> so it's one of these that they were, they were, they were, were kind of bringing synchronicity into it as well. This mm-hmm. idea of like culture creates reality. But yeah, that show is dark. I mean, especially the final episode where they're trapped in nowhere, the forever nowhere. It's, it's really chilling. The idea. It's almost like being, you know, a, a demon harvesting your soul and holding at the gates of the tenth aether for all eternity. It was a very, very dark show, and I thought the acting was perfect for it. But yeah, I'm amazed. And again, I'm amazed I didn't see it. I'm amazed. Well, there's there's shows, uh, you know, in in the lineup, you know, some of which I mentioned uh, in the introduction that I didn't see at the time as well. You know, I, I didn't see Children of the Stones or the Changes or the Owl Service or the Tomorrow People. How I missed all this, I don't know. But as you say, there was so it was very rich at that time culturally. Just you know, despite it being you know, a wasteland quite often if you looked out the window, but there was there, in a general, there was more space kind of within mainstream culture, it seemed at that time. Not that the mainstream is everything, but it's just that these things were put in front of a mass audience was interesting, and that mainstream drama and comedy, there's actually a quote, I think, from, from the book that we've, as it kind of inspired this discussion, discussion where the author mentions that uh, some of these things, it even includes Faulty Towers in this, that these mainstream uh, dramas and comedies somehow escaped into the world without being neutered, you know, which I thought yeah. was a great comment. The rise and fall of Reginald Perrin, or the fall and rise of Reginald Perrin. Mm-hmm. Leonard, Leonard Roster emerged going into the O, taking his clothes off, got an English businessman over middle class, going into the sea at the beginning and re-emerging as a, almost like an Orpheus character from the abyss, from the underworld, with finally the faculties to allow him to survive when, in a world of absolute surreal absurdities called modern business mm-hmm. could you imagine even pitching that to a, a tv <laughs> executive today and yet it was usually successful and usually popular the shows that you'd mentioned the only one of them i have a very clear and i uh, that that i was in it from the start was children of the stones and the reason for that was that bizarre vocal intro that multi creepy harmony vocal intro that happens with those uh, fisheye lens and handheld camera shots with jump cuts of the stones at Avebury. That thing was like, uh, you know, a bomb exploding. You couldn't, you couldn't ignore it. 
And I even at the next day at school, we were all making fun of that soundtrack, that song, or wherever it is at the beginning, that vocal performance, and trying to do it. And it was just the the final scream that they do at the end. We were just rolling around laughing, but it was like it got it got the job done. We were all glued to that series. We were fascinated by it, and that that was the one I do remember at the time in the moment, absolutely being captivated by. I didn't see the L service till much much later on, and that was only because. I'd heard about the book, and I couldn't believe that a story like that was written for children. And uh, the, the, the TV series, didn't, I have to be honest, didn't blow me away. It was good, but it's, it's, it was a bit, it was a bit, it, it wouldn't have been my cup of tea, no pun intended. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the, that's the one, the Children of the Stones. That that hit me as a, you know, as twelve or something, like an atomic bomb. Well, I've just recently gone and watched the entire series and I found it really compelling. I watched a limited only just under half an hour each episode and there's like six or seven or maybe eight, something like that. So it's not a lot of watching really, but I limited myself to one episode per night, but I found I had to watch one every night. I really wanted to go back to it and for all its slight creakiness in places and you've got children child actors in it who are pretty good, you know, but they're, they're, yeah. they're limited by definition, you know, but I find it really, really compelling. And actually, if people rewind and listen to the pastiche I did at the start of this, there's some of the soundtrack that you just referred to, that ghostly uh, vocal stuff. In general, Children of the Stones brings into sharp relief this uh, contrast or this conflict, I should say, between uh, the country and the city. And yeah. that's only only one dimension of this show, but I think a lot of the un, the uncanny and the unsettling parts of Children of the Stones is just its rural location and the people that are there. Yeah, the, the scientist and his son represent the, the townies in the in a place they can't understand. Another thing about, I like about that show is uh, it's funny watching it now. That went out at like 4.30 in the afternoon, and there's the adults smoking cigars and drinking double scotches and things like that. You'd never see that today. Oh, no. I mean, the the, the alcohol consumption in, uh, in mainstream TV, well, in all... TV and movies back then was heroic, you know, to say nothing of the smoking, but it was just the, it's how casual it is. Cause you kind of think, you know, these days it's so rare that you see young people smoking actual cigarettes. Whereas when I was, when I was a teenager, like several of my friends smoked for a while and you'd see, oh, you know, adults seem to be puffing away constantly. So smoking has declined, but the drinking thing back there, it just seemed to be, I mean, I've seen YouTube videos where somebody's taken a particular TV show, let's say the Sweeney, for example, and they've taken one episode of it and they've just cut out all the bits where Regan and Carter or some of the other cast are drinking. <laughs> That's really, yeah. really, really funny. And it turns out it's, they're in the pub or they're like getting bottles of scotch out of their filing cabinet for about five minutes out of a 50 minute show. Or you'd have like scenes where you'd have an office building where the, the, the executive would have a decanter of scotch on his desk, two glasses. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, what a different time it was. It was, it was almost like, you know, a lot of free- it reminds you that a lot of freedom has been lost since then too, as well. One other dimension of this we're talking in particular here about Children of the Stones was there was a another phrase uh, from Stephen Prince's book, and I can't remember if it's his or whether he was quoting someone else. I think he might have been quoting someone else, but it doesn't matter. And he was referring to some of these shows uh, as being like a cathode ray séance, and I love that. I like the idea that there was. That there's something reaching out to you from the the screen. You know, think of the movie like Poltergeist, but there's something reaching out to you. There's some interaction between you and this, what you're watching, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, that's operating on more than just a superficial level. It's almost like there's times I've watched shows, particularly back in the day, with Sapphire and Steel or something. It was almost like I felt that they on the screen were aware of me. Like this show was playing for me. Other people have watched this episode, but they're not seeing the same episode. This episode somehow feels like it's customized for me. Sapphire and Steel are real. They're inside that cathode ray tube. They know I'm watching, and they're watching me. That cat, that's a, that's a fantastic phrase, cathode ray seance. I absolutely love that. Yeah, and also, well, the cathode ray tube, it, you know, in my book Sorcery, I covered this, was a development of the occult. It was developed by an occultist. And the first thing he broadcasted on the cathode ray tube was what we call the multi-cross, the croix petit, which is itself an, an occultic symbol. The very first thing that was ever broadcast on TV was an occultic symbol developed by an occultist. So it's not surprising that that lineage had 
carried it's it's probably i'd be interested in knowing how that differs say you know an lcd tv screen of the day was there something about the cathode ray tube that absorbed us deeper into the into the seance as such see this this and this it's like old analog electronics the same, and we're going to talk about synthesizers as well. It's the same idea. Is there something? Well, there is. I know it for a fact. I've been speaking about this for years. But there's something about the analog signal, the analog processing, that does lend itself to a, a more transcendental experience with electronics than you get with, you know, cold digital electronics. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you've not only spoken about it in the past. We discussed it several times in in our talks. Incidentally, we have done many interviews together and if people are interested they'll find them all linked up on the interview page for this one at legalizefreedom.com you can just click through and explore if you're interested in general in what we're saying here i think you'll people will find a lot um, of value there one further word about sapphire and steel i was talking about that particular show me having, having that particular effect on me it echoes something i was saying earlier about there being you know more to reality than meets the eye and that you said they were like pagan gods and it's a bit like the ancient Greek idea of the gods. You know, there's a there's power plays and agendas and things going on that affect us directly that are out of our control and we have most of us have no awareness of. That's what that felt like. Yeah, definitely. We, we, it, to continue on from the the cathode ray seance, we were staring into an oracle. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we're talking about Children of the Stones, in case it wasn't mentioned. We're talking there about standing stones, stone circles. In the case of that particular show, it was the uh, the circles at Avebury. In fact, it's set in Avebury, it was shot in Avebury. And uh, you've written a lot um, and spoken a lot about megaliths. It's one of your major areas of interest. And we've mentioned Quatermass here. Now, there's, that was a series of books, films, and ultimately a TV show written by Nigel Neal, who's one of my favourites from this era. I think the guy was a genius. And he even manages to, and there's something we talked about when we were talking about the Druid Code, your book. He even managed to squeeze Megalus into um, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, that movie, which he was involved with the original script development. But the TV series that you mentioned earlier, the Quatermass one, the final one, involving these young people and a cult based around megaliths, is it's just incredibly expansive and um, evocative. We could do several shows just on that alone. It's so enormous. But the, just to keep it in the context of the Quatermass 3 or Quatermass 79 or whatever we went down with John Mills when it went down, mm-hmm. What I loved about the Quatermass series is that when it first starts out on the BBC or whoever broadcast it originally, Quatermass is an unorthodox scientist at battle, not battle, but in kind of like psych, uh, intellectual and emotional conflict, ethical conflict with the power structure, which is n- usually always the military. So there's a kind of a Cold War pastiche of you know these madmen are going to destroy the world that's very apparent in Quatermass and the pit played by the 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 general that was in that brett i think his name was and by the time we get to Quatermass three in 79 a lot of things we spoke with beginning this broadcast are summed up at the intro you can't get across london because there's gangs that ruled the gangs almost like terrorist type gangs and they're very heavily equipped with machine guns and everything who run parts of london and the streets are not safe now we're seeing that happening today in london as it is and you have the t- they go to a tv show and i don't know if you remember but the tv show that's uh, that he's on has this like ridiculous i don't even know what to call it it would wouldn't even call it surrealist but just pure stupidness vapidness just to get on tv and that's you know that has all come through since then you know with reality tv and all these so-called talent shows and then he's in conflict not with the military but he's in conflict with society it's society is falling apart and all he cares about at this point is finding his his granddaughter or his grandniece who's missing and apparently she's gone off with this these lay people who are a cult led by a Barda Meinhof type psychopath who they're being brought to the stone circles for, in order to have their, it's just fantastic really, to have their energies harvested by these alien, well they, they don't act, it's like, like the 
you know, the, the village of the damned. There's, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's no mention there of space aliens. It's just an exterior force. And that's what I love about that, that kind of idea. Just another force. It doesn't necessarily be aliens from another planet. And the, uh, the, the cult becomes increasingly more vicious and hostile. I covered this and I even remember the page 160 in Defeat the Demons. I brought, I wrote a chapter, well, a segment in a chapter on psychopathology and cults. And I mentioned, I referenced Quatermass 3 and the lay, the lay people cult, planet people cult, sorry, and the, the, the pathological psychopathic leadership basically being the conduit between the exterior non-human pathological force and that of the innocent flower hippies who are being brainwashed into being food for these negative entities and so on and so it was you know even back then when i was writing books about psychopathology i was including a lot of stuff i would because it was always a long an ongoing interest with me but that show is amazing that what they cover in that even the fact that they they have the the jewish sabbath right before that the harvesting at the stone circle that was even like the conflict between paganism and uh, the Abraham Abrahamic religions. It was all the writing was outstanding. I mean, as you said, the man is a genius. It's it's sensational, actually. And let's talk about Halloween three. Now, that's another aspect we can bring to this as well is the idea of the same cult. You know, as this show is going out over the world, it it may be difficult for people, say in the United States, to understand the kind of context we're talking in in terms of our culture, but you can see the symbiotic waves in a similar cultural experiences in of this whole, like you want to call it something like an English dream time connected to the new England idea in the USA. And this kind of conduit towards American Gothic horror. You had say, starting with Edgar Allan Poe making its way through HP Lovecraft and on the Stephen King mm-hmm. into a, and into a world of American, you know, American artists like Andrew and Jamie Wyatt and Charles Birds feel this American kind of like dark rural painting. And you have from Maryland to Maine, the same microcosmic reflection of the same experiences we're talking about in this part of the world. And if you're to glue both arms of this experience together, John Carpenter and Nigel Neal in Halloween three seasons, the witch does that perfectly. Perfectly. I, did, I actually did an analysis of this for Beyond Room 313 recently, and although it takes place in California, the old New England, Britain, Celtic, Druidry elements are all there in that story in the in Halloween 3, right down to the stealing, as you said, of one of the Stonehenge monuments. I think in the decades to come, he'll be remembered as one of the greatest writers of all time. When uh, I was reading, there's a book, I can't remember the author, but it's called Order in the Universe, the films of John Carpenter, and it just has a chapter on each of the films that he'd done up to that point, which is most of them actually, because that was around the time that he'd sort of stopped working so much. And there was a quote from an interview with Nigel Neal, and it was about the plot, where the plot for Halloween 3 was going, because like you and I know how it ends. And um, it's quite a typical John Carpenter, you know, ambiguous ending, a bit like at the end of the thing, you know, he's like, we'll just sit here and see what happens. Like, no, you can't leave us like that, but it's <laughs> it's so delicious. But so Nigel Neal's being quizzed by somebody on the production team or whatever, just like, look, I'm not sure about this. I mean, this is going to be a bit much for the audience to take. And he said, I don't give a fuck about the audience. And I kind of thought that was yes, you know, that if only more people could could be like that. Yeah, and we we live in a world where that's not allowed anymore. Hmm. Everything is, mar- is, you know, determined by market research and focus groups and, you know, viewing, viewing analysis and things like that. And that's interesting too, like it, it, the... It's one of these kind of like counterpoint connecting dots thing. Then we have the John Carpenter and the whole analog synthesizer thing. It's, you know, did, you know, the part, you know, the part of his movies played, particularly Halloween one, how, how influential that was in the synthesizer music that came along later all over the world. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, it, it's almost like this, this thing became a, a glue or something. That glued so many things together, and yet there was they were not far apart. It's it's so strange when you think about that. There's all these kind of uh, interfaces like Nigel Neal, you know, between Hollywood, John Carpenter, and the UK. It's 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 an amazing thing, really. But that that that, that if people have not seen Quatermass three, I suggest you watch it because 
it's very, very deep. And like, say, TV shows like The Prisoner, it's probably more relevant now than it was even back then. A couple of things sprung to mind if, uh, from your comments just now. Yeah, this is like, uh, well, you know, these things do exist in such an interconnected way. It's like a, a global web before there was a, a network computer web, if you see what I mean. But yeah, you're talking about Carpenter and even, you know, even though Halloween 3 is set in California, well, yeah, it, it's like a flip side, isn't it? In some ways. And there is uh, a comment in some of his films on American culture. Ameri- well, a very big one, actually, in the same way that there is with David Cronenberg and Canadian culture. And it's, well, the, the parts of Canadian culture that are similar to U.S. culture of the time. But another of John Carpenter's films, The Fog, is set just up the coast in California. And yeah. it, it echoes some of what I said earlier about the, you know, an uncanny, unsettling dimension to the countryside. And the takeaway from that is like, hey, LA is, as it, and lots of people have said it, that's a bubble. LA, yeah. does, LA doesn't really represent California. Well, he kind of transferred New England to the West Coast of America. Mm-hmm. I mean, every, like, it's, the, the town where the, Shim, the Silver Shamrock factory is in, in California, in Halloween 3, is really, it's like Salem's lot has been, Jerusalem's lot has been brought over there and and the fog that could be you know that could be so that's somewhere in Maine or Massachusetts coastline mm-hmm. it's the same it's the same thing he basically I don't know maybe he made it because he, he it was easier to make it out there but those stories could be easily set in New England it was the same element it's almost like this what what began in England in the early 70s uh, became a chain reaction that went to New England in Stephen King and the films that came out of that and then bounced its way over across the other side of America to to California. It's just, it was the same conduit. Well, we know at that around this time we had Black Sabbath happening in the UK and yeah. in England. That was in many ways a product of the death of the summer of love that we talked about, this new harsh reality. One response to Black Sabbath over in the US, Sandy Perlman, what did he come up with? Blue oyster, oyster cult. Blue, yeah. blue oyster cult. You knew where I was going with that, you know. Yeah. So, and I, I will an honorary mention that we must never forget, and deserves our salute in this musically is Hawkwind. Mm. Hawkwind could very much be the soundtrack of all we're talking about if you look at everything from their their heavy metal, their rock and roll, their psychedelia, and especially the use of analog synthesizers. Yeah, a lot of people think of them as the archetypal hippie band, and they did play all those on the back of trucks in Ladbroke Grove and all those free yeah. free festivals and everything else. But as Lemmy, the late Lemmy, best known perhaps for his band Motorhead, but he's part of Hawkwind in the seventies, he said, "No, no, we were a black nightmare." You know, if you went to if you went to a Hawkwind show back in you know in seventy two, seventy three, and dropped a load of acid, there's no guarantee you were going to have what, what looked like a good time. Also, Lemmy in his biography, the one that came out about twenty years ago. He was talking about when oh, the white members line of fever. Well, yeah, that one, was it. That one I don't remember, but it was it, the one that was a big hit. Mm-hmm. And and uh, he spoes about Hawk, the first time Hawkwind saw a UFO. They were going to the Yorkshire Moors somewhere, and basically a ball of light followed the bus stop and hovered over them. And that was fascinating. I thought, but even to bring in the earlier terrorism thing, wasn't there a member of Hawkwind that was like? carrying grenades around with the band he wanted to start a revolution i mean the history of that band is is almost impossible to believe it's just so out there but yeah i would i would add them you know i you know they came from the hippie era but i would say that they musically they played probably a huge a huge part in all this oh absolutely well they they got into quite a lot of hot water with their song urban gorilla yeah uh, i think you know, what yeah, yeah you know, i think it was that i think it was that guy actually the guy who sings on it or the guy who wrote it yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an urban gorilla. I make bombs in my cellar. The lyrics went, you know, it was like, whoa, he couldn't come out with that now. So. No, and that was even before punk. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, that, they're a big influence, I think. I think Hawkwind are one of those bands that, from the hippie era, from the prog era, that the punks didn't detest. In the same way that Motorhead were one of the bands that were that came out, you know, '75, and then punk hit, and you'd see punks at Motorhead shows. So I think there was a there was an understanding yeah. there, you know. It was Hawkwind, Motorhead, Thin Lizzy, I'd say, and even Blue Oyster Cult. They were the ones, the bands that they were, they were tolerated by the punks. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's a very good way of putting it. 
One other little nugget, and it's just another little thread in this web of connection, was that William Friedkin, uh, director of the French Connection and a number of my other favourite films, he directed The Exorcist, of course, most famously. People will remember a little snippets of Michael Field's Tubular Bells on the soundtrack. William Friedkin later said, because he got Tangerine Dream, it's one of the architects of the synthesizer music that we mentioned earlier, he got them to score his film Sorcerer, but he said, if I had heard Tangerine Dream before I'd finished The Exorcist, I would have got them to do the score, and I've always thought to myself, oh, Damn, you know that. You know, what, what, imagine what that would have been like. That would have been amazing. Not to take from The Exorcist and Tubular Bells. That was that worked also. That concludes part one of our interview. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. If you enjoyed the show, check out the website, which is legalizefreedom.com. That's legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including politics and economics, energy and environment culture, spirituality, history, and the nature of reality. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.